Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Addiction plays hardball. He would hit me with these verbal attacks. I just said to him, I love you so much. You're such an amazing person. I can't take this ride anymore. It was the fact that dad made that sentiment and broke down. And years later, he told me it had a huge impact on him. Sometimes doing what's right for your loved one is the hardest thing to do. Karen is that right thing. Visit caron.org slash lost. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Well, it's Christmas time, trees are up, stockings are hung, and you've likely seen Santa Claus a dozen or so times already. While many Christmas traditions have ancient roots, Christmas culture as we know it today is a modern creation, and most of that genesis happened in New York City, the Big Apple, over a century ago. My guest today on the show wrote a book that explores the development of Christmas in New York City by looking at a 1920s con man who used the story of Santa Claus to swindle hundreds of thousands of dollars from generous New Yorkers. The author of the book is Alex Palmer, and his book is The Santa Claus Man, The Rise and Fall of a Jazz Age Con Man, and The Invention of Christmas in New York. And today on the show, Alex and I discuss what Christmas looked like before the 19th century and the famous New Yorkers who helped turn Christmas into what it is today. Against that backdrop, we discuss the life and times of John Gluck, a PR man who started an organization that answered letters written to Santa Claus, but in the process, lined his pockets with hundreds of thousands of dollars. It's also a story that sidetracks to a, a story that involves a bitter rivalry between the Boy Scouts of America and another scouting organization that consisted of rifle-toting 12-year-olds. Uh, you don't want to miss this holiday edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. It's going to give you lots of fodder to talk about at Christmas dinner. After the show's over, check out the show notes at aom.is slash Santa Claus Man. Alex Palmer, welcome to the show. Hey, Brett. Thanks for having me. All right. Uh, you wrote a book called The Santa Claus Man, The Rise and Fall of a Jazz Age Con Man and the Invention of Christmas in New York. And I was telling you earlier, uh, before we started recording, that this is probably the funnest history book I've read in a long <laughs> time, because uh, it has Christmas, it's, it's seasonal, it's December now, um, and it just it involves all these missing bits, like these, these forgotten bits of American history that still have an influence on American culture today. I mean, we got Santa Claus, the way we celebrate Christmas, Boy Scouts uh, make, <laughs> make an appearance in this um, so it, it's a lot of fun, and it all centers around this uh, caper story involving a guy named John Gluck who used Santa Claus to line his pockets from and uh, generous New Yorkers. How did you, let's, before we get into like, the details of, of Gluck, and we'll get to what he did specifically, but how did you find out about this guy and what he yeah. did? Yeah. Thanks a lot. Yeah. And, and that's kind of an interesting story in itself. Uh, I, John Glock is actually a relative of mine. He's a great grand uncle who I didn't really know much about till a couple years back. It was actually on Christmas Eve. We were sitting around 
with our family. And my uncle had mentioned that we had this relative that had been, he didn't know a lot of details, but he had been Santa Claus. He had answered Santa letters in New York. And that was about all he knew. Uh, and that seemed like a fun story. I thought maybe there was, there'd be, it'd be worth just learning for myself, or maybe there'd be a fun article or something. So I did a little digging, uh, and found out that we had had this, this, uh, figure in our, in, in our family who had, uh, started a group that answered Santa letters and, uh, had really become something of a, a jazz age celebrity in New York. A lot of newspaper articles about him, uh, a lot of coverage and, and celebrities that worked with him. But then as I started digging more, I realized there was a lot more to the story, a lot of darker aspects to what he was doing and what sort of was discovered about the the, the seemingly warm-hearted charitable work that he uh, was, was set on. And that's when I realized there was a, a great potential for a book here. Right. So we'll get into uh, the seedier parts of Gluck's story later on. But uh, let's set some background for this because he used Santa Claus as sort of the the ruse for his con. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I loved about your book and what I, I found fascinating was pretty much what we think of as Christmas today and what how we conceptualize Santa Claus today. It was invented in New York City. Um, yeah. During like the late night. I mean, all the way from the beginning of the ninth, early 19th century to the end. Um, mm-hmm. Can you walk us through briefly the evolution of Santa? from the moment he arrived uh, in New York um, at the beginning of the 19th century or, you know, late 18th century mm-hmm. to how he became the big, fat, jolly guy in the red yeah. suit. <laughs> the familiar guy we know. And that, and that's, like you were saying, it was actually a surprise to me, too, as I started reading it, just as I was learning about my own relative, these interesting backstories. Santa himself, sort of this character I thought I knew, I thought was this timeless figure, that just was imported from Europe and uh, caught on here and maybe Coca-Cola had helped invent. I, I sort of had these different uh, assumptions about the character. Once I started digging, it, it did turn out he was, he's really a New York invention. So yeah. So, but he, he really did start kind of at the beginning of the 19th century in New York. It was sort of a handful of uh, figures of writers and uh, kind of patrician leaders in the city who we're getting frustrated with the way Christmas was being celebrated in the city. And they wanted to, they, they sort of, there was this, um, the figure of St. Nicholas had kind of been floating around. It was, it was a, a familiar character, but it was really, uh, Washington Irving, the author, you know, more familiarly as the, the writer of legend of sleepy hollow or Rip Van Winkle. Uh, he, wrote this sort of satirical history called the history of New York. That was more like just kind of a comedy book that uh, took pieces of true facts about New York history, characters that were actually figures in the history, and then added a lot of his own kind of comedic uh, wit to it. And one of the, the additional characters he had, and it was St. Nicholas who he presented as being this uh, major figure uh, in the Dutch, uh, the early Dutch settlers culture, they worshiped St. Nicholas. He was on the bow of the first ship that came into Harbor in New York. Uh, according to, to, uh, Washington Irving's, uh, telling of it. Uh, and that he was this guy who rode around on a, a wagon over rooftops, dropping gifts to, to children. So that was, this was in 1809. And this was 
really the first time St. Nicholas was being discussed in this way as this kind of mythical, fun figure. Uh, prior to that, he was really this, he, he was a, a saint, he was associated with the Catholic Church, but he didn't have these sort of fun elements in the way that uh, that, that Washington Irving uh, introduced. Um, and that, that was kind of one, the, one of the earliest, uh, what really kind of foundational moment of Santa Claus in the U.S. Uh, and that book was immensely popular. That version of St. Nicholas was widely discussed and became this sort of figure that, that was became well-known and, and became the sort of uh, a, a new version of the character that hadn't really existed prior to that. Uh, and so his work combined with, there was uh, another man named John Pintard who was one of the founders of the New York Historical Society, and he had also kind of had a, had this uh, this interest in our in in the, the the New York past, in its Dutch founders and the culture surrounding it. And he had made an effort, his own effort, to kind of bring Saint Nicholas, this sort of cult of Saint Nicholas, to America and to New York, uh, and kind of took it from took a very different approach of uh, talking about. Say, the, the sort of noble aspects of Saint Nick and these these uh, ideas of him, his generosity and and those sort of points. Uh, he he was really he tried to bring back um, the celebration of Saint Nicholas Day on December sixth, and uh, this just sense of uh, of Saint Nick as this cultural. Uh, uh, sort of godfather uh, to the city. Uh, he actually tried to get him to be instituted as the patron saint of New York. So kind of both this, it was 1809 that Washington Irving's book came out and it was 1810 that John Pintard kind of uh, instituted this St. Nicholas Day feast celebration and created a woodcut of the character. It was the first time you actually had an image of St. Nicholas in New York City or in the U.S. at all. Uh, so those kind of two things then got the ball rolling with St. Nick. Um, but he was still kind of a, a ecclesiastical figure, the sort of church, you know, more affiliated with the, the saint part than, than before he was really a Santa Claus. Uh, and it took really a few other developments, particularly Clement Clark Moore wrote that poem that you know, the night, it was the night before Christmas uh, and all through the house. And, and that came out in 1821. And that really in all this, this, so many elements of Santa Claus that we know now grew out of that poem. Um, and, and he was really, when he wrote that poem, kind of cherry picking different elements of the character that had been introduced by Irving and Pintard and a couple other writers. Uh, and he really got the ball rolling on, on Santa. So by the time it was, you know, early 1820s, you had that version of Santa Claus really starting to be seen. And it took a few other figures up. Thomas Nast, who is an illustrator for Harper's, uh, put drew for years, he would draw these illustrations of Santa in uh, that magazine every Christmas. And it became one of the most popular, you know, it was, it, it was a widely read magazine. And that that was what sort of solidified the final image of Santa Claus. And that was around like the 1860s, 1870s. Uh, and so then from that point, that was really where the modern Santa Claus image was was created right and then also i thought it was interesting like the history of writing letters to santa um that took some time 
Yeah, it, de- it also developed over time. And, and around the same time, it was really the 1800s, when, when it first, you know, early 1820s, w- where Santa really had started as this kind of disciplinary ecclesiastical figure, uh, Santa letters too kind of started in this didactic way, where really the earliest letters were written from Santa to children. Uh, he would, it would be the, uh, these parents writing to their kids about, you've done this really well during the year, but I think you should be doing this and, and just judging them on their behavior, what they, you know, the, 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 the goods and bads, kind of this voice of God they would be creating for their children. Uh, and there would be these lessons in there and, and little, uh, you know, requests for how they should behave in the next year. But then over time that shifted as well with figures like Thomas Nast drawing illustrations of Santa answering his letters uh, with developments in the postal service where it became easier for kids to actually write a letter and drop it in the mail and it would actually be sent out. Uh, It started to catch on and you had a lot more kids writing to Santa. You had uh, 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 kids being more uh, open about requesting gifts. Uh, and this was about around the time when, you know, mass production was becoming more common. So they would go from asking for things like apples or, uh, you know, little homemade gifts to asking for a specific, uh, you know, doll or a specific uh, toy that they wanted that uh, they could buy at the department store. Um, and soon these letters were really piling up. Right. Now that'll lead us to uh, John Gluck and what he did. But uh, b- besides Santa, like the way we just celebrate Christmas in America, um, was pretty much New York City too. Um, you know, for example, we offer Christmas is this very domestic, family-oriented holiday where you just sit with your family and you know you maybe get together as a community to do these community things. But it wasn't always like that uh, in America. How did how did people celebrate Christmas in America in the early days, and how did New York City? Uh, change that. Yeah, yeah. Christmas had really kind of gone back and forth in the way it was celebrated. I like to think of it as kind of going from outdoor to indoor and back again. Uh, it, you know, going way back, it had started really as this pagan festival to celebrate the end of the harvest. The church kind of co-opted that in like, I think it was like the fourth century uh, where they then made that officially Christmas and tried to make it more of a religious holiday. And there was a lot of tension about that back and forth. So you always had these tensions where it was the, 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 the church trying to create a more spiritual uh, holy day and these pagan roots that kept coming back up where it was a time to party. You'd done all the work for the year. You had all this food and drink, so you're going to enjoy it. Uh, and in New York, kind of during the early 1800s, really, that was when the, the outdoor celebration sort of pagan roots were on full display where when people would celebrate Christmas, it was just going into the streets, partying, they would sing, uh, drink, be shooting off guns and fireworks. It was just this, maybe closer to, to what you see as celebrating New Year's, but much more anarchy where it would just be, you know, this, this wild partying that would be happening in the streets. And that obviously didn't sit well with a lot of the town elders or the you know the upper classes the, a lot of these people partying were the 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 working class and the people who didn't have that many opportunities to blow off steam the the upper class really preferred to celebrate new years they would have more quiet time in in their homes they might visit with friends go to go you know from from one house to the other and uh, say hello but the real party 
on Christmas Day was was these sort of lower castes and and the 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 um, more wealthy and the elite wanted to see a shift happen in the holiday. And that's where you had folks like John Pintard and, and others, uh, Clement Clark Moore, they really started to encourage this celebration of Christmas as a family holiday and moving it indoors uh, again. And even with maybe less religious connection than it, than it had uh, in, in some of its earlier versions, but they really made it a family holiday. Then uh, that, corresponded with the time when when formal police groups were being created so they could actually start enforcing uh, these laws and, and put a stop to the drunken madness happening on the streets. Uh, and it really ended up shifting the holiday into the house uh, where people, if they were going to celebrate Christmas, it would be with their family, with with parents giving gifts to kids rather than say, uh, you know, the, the, the party or the, you know, the newspaper boy who was, you know, you know, demanding tips from uh, one of, from his customers, uh, which is what it had been before. And I mean, also things like uh, Christmas trees became popular in New York city. I mean, I'm sure Christmas trees were being used by American immigrants throughout America, but like in New York city, like the idea of like a Christmas tree lot where he would go and buy a Christmas tree that started in New York city too. Yeah, that's right. And that was around 1850s, as you were saying, it, it had been sort of, there, there, there had been sort of this tradition of Christmas trees from some of the German immigrants and there, it, 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 it was being done, but not really on a, a, a large scale basis until there started to be more newspapers covering this practice, especially after uh, Prince Al, uh, Prince Albert in uh, England brought that to uh, when when uh, he married uh, Victoria. He brought that uh, practice into uh, you know the the the, the into the, that to, to England, and then that was covered in the American papers, and people started to catch on to that. So it was in New York City where the market for it became clear. People were starting to want those Christmas trees. And there was a, uh, a merchant in New York who had the idea of, well, why don't I, he, he was living up uh, in the uh, you know, upstate New York where they, he had a lot where he just had all these evergreen trees that he didn't know what to do with. He had the struck on the idea of, well, why don't I go down to the city and sell these? And he did, uh, I think it was 1851 was the first year he went down and, and uh, just opened up a little shop on the corner of, uh, of, of the Washington market uh, and immediately sold out. And and from, from that point on, uh, Christmas tree farms became a staple in the city and in New York and then throughout the United States. Right. And then um, you also we see the merging of uh, commercialism with Christmas in New York City, too, like the, the F.W. Woolworth Company. Um, huge in making Christmas decorations popular. Yeah. And it followed a similar pattern as the the Christmas tree market where it was something that, you know, had been done kind of informally. People might make their own ornaments or candles lighted, you know, actual uh, ignited candles were very popular for a while. So also there every, you know, day after Christmas, there'd be reports of these homes burning or, or the fire department would have to be on high alert because uh, so much of that, you know, that where these, these trees would just go up. Uh, and with, as it was so much else uh, around Christmas, there there was a clear market there that uh, figures like F.W. Woolworth saw. He was the one who founded the Five and Dime store and really kind of created the idea of, of a department store for people that didn't have a ton of money. He had a lot of inexpensive things that he would sell. And this made Christmas ornaments very affordable. He uh, 
saw the opportunity here of really, you know, doubling down on Christmas. He he partnered with uh, these glass makers in Germany who made these special uh, or Christmas ornaments. So he would sell those uh, and first kind of did a test run the first year and they immediately sold out. And soon that became one of his biggest sellers each year. Uh, and that really kind of pioneered what now we have with, you know, Black Friday on where, say, you know, Christmas decorations, Christmas gifts have become just such a, a huge part of the holiday. But that really originated uh, in that in that time frame around the eight, late 1800s. Yeah. All right. So this brings us back to John Gluck and his Santa Claus Association. So we have this sentimental, we have this idea of Christmas being very sentimental, this idea of Santa who is a, a jolly guy, he's not disciplinarian, but he's there to give gifts to children. Um, and Gluck had this idea of answering letters from uh, poor New Yorkers, children, um, to fulfill their Christmas wishes. So let's talk about like why, why was, what happened to these letters uh, before Gluck decided, I'm going to be the guy to answer them. Yeah, yeah. So these letters, as you know, children were writing them, they started uh, getting more, more and more stacking up where they would put them in the mailbox and they would go to the post office. Obviously, there wasn't a Santa Claus that they could actually deliver them to. So generally, either the post office would pass them off to newspapers and they would sometimes publish the letters or... Uh, occasional groups would volunteer to take them. Uh, but the, the law was that if a letter came that couldn't be delivered to a recipient, they, they were supposed to go to the dead letter office and be destroyed. So that's what would end up happening with most of these letters. Uh, there was some back and forth with, they tried to change the, the, the rules or, uh, there was a lot of protests from different, uh, both, you know, different, private groups and individuals and, and even uh, the New York Times weighed in saying the post office should really release these letters uh, and be, put a lot of pressure on the post office to do something about all these Santa letters. There was this outcry that all these children's wishes are just being ignored and destroyed and this just seemed like a tragedy for sometimes tens of thousands of kids who just weren't getting, uh, you know, we're, we're having these innocent letters just go to the garbage. So. The post office finally relented. There was enough pressure put on them that uh, in 1912, they changed the rule. And they said, all right, on a local level, if, if any city's post uh, postmaster wants to give these letters to a, a charitable group that's interested in answering them or even an individual, they can do that. Uh, it's, it's, you know, up to the postmaster's discretion and it's depends on if there's somebody or a group that's willing to answer these letters, but, uh, we will, we will, you know, grant them. Uh, so this was a bit, a very popular decision. Once this was made, it got a lot of attention. People were excited that Santa's letters were going to be answered, but in the biggest city in the country, uh, nobody really came forward. There was still thousands of children's letters that were going to the New York post office and just have an end up at the dead letter office in 1912. Nobody came forward uh, to claim them. So they just ended up getting destroyed. And that's where John Gluck saw an opportunity. He was reading these stories about all these letters and, and thought this might be a, a worthwhile project to undertake. Prior to that, he had been this uh, press agent and uh, publicist and uh, uh, working as a, um, uh, like uh, as a customs broker 
where it was this job that he had inherited from his dad. He's been working for the family company, doing things he wasn't very particularly interested in. So he really moved into more work as as this publicist, trying to get generate interest in for for clients, and uh, got started getting uh, good with creating press contacts and getting news into, you know, about various events or, uh, you know, uh, different, you know, business opportunities and things like that, he would get uh, the press to cover. So he thought, well, his combination of business savvy and ability to generate press, combine that with this idea of answering Santa letters, and it was just too irresistible of an opportunity for him. So he, he founded this group in 1913 called the Santa Claus Association, requested the letters from the postmaster who granted it to him. Uh, and so in 1913, this was the first year that, that New York City's children's Santa letters would be answered. And did he start off like with sincere intentions? Like he thought like, I could, we could do something good here. Or was he looking at it like, this could actually help me out some way? It really, it, from, from what I can tell, it certainly seems like he had some good intentions. Obviously, if he was somebody just out to make a quick buck, this was not the easiest way to do that. Uh, he and he made took a lot of steps, made, made a real show of the, verifying that these letters, the, the way he set up the association and kind of what set it apart from efforts to answer Santa letters in the past was he would uh, he, he he wouldn't actually handle any of the gifts or any donations himself, and he made a, a major uh, point of that when he first founded the group. He had a lot of volunteers that would help out, and all it really did it was more of a, a clearinghouse for these letters, where the postman would give the Santa Claus Association this stack of Santa letters. Uh, Gluck and his volunteers would then send these letters out to individuals who volunteered to to receive them or just people who he had he'd gotten their names and maybe prominent members of society vanderbilts and and others uh, and would just send them these santa letters they would then get that and they could answer that on their own so you'd get a letter from johnny asking for you know a toy truck and you personally could either mail that gift to johnny and say it was from santa or you could even go yourself to visit and hand him the gift. So the Santa Claus Association was just there to route those requests. They weren't uh, accepting gifts. They weren't accepting money. Or so so it was when he first founded and started the group. Uh, but this idea really did catch on. And uh, what whatever Gluck's motivations, it certainly, th- there were people answering these letters. There were thousands of kids that ended up receiving gifts as a result of it. So it certainly had a, a positive impact right out the gate, uh, whether, but whether it was a purely, uh, from innocent, uh, motives was, it was not totally clear. Wedding season is coming up. And if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day, wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suits started at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. 
a lot of fun, and then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. All right, if you have a family, then you need to get term life insurance to protect them. It's one of the smartest financial decisions you can make, and the start of the new year is the perfect time to get it done so you can focus on whatever else the year has in store for you. Fabric by Gerber Life was designed by parents for parents to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. Fabric has flexible policies that fit your family and your budget with quality policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. There's no risk to apply. They have a 30-day money-back guarantee, and you can cancel at any time. I remember when I was a new dad, I had a lot of thoughts going through my head. One of them was, how can I take care of my family when I'm gone, if something happens to me? Well, it's one of the first things I did. I got term life insurance, one of the best decisions I made. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash manliness. That's meetfabric.com slash manliness, M-E-E-T fabric.com slash manliness. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company, not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. Daylight saving time is starting up again. The goal of this is to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting our clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, but if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There is only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to help you find qualified candidates. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you can reach more of the right people. ZipRecruiter smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. All right, you got that in your head? Now picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors, and many of these instructors are former AOM podcast guests. You can learn negotiation from Chris Voss, leadership skills from Jocko Willink, how to master your habits with James Clear. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. So recently, I went through the Masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. A lot of useful information in there. Talked about the value of known in negotiation, how to use your body language and speech patterns to get your best out of a negotiation. Very well done. I really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. Right now, listeners of our podcast can get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash AOM. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash AOM. Masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. I mean, what sort of tactics did he use to gin up support for the Santa Claus Association? Because I mean, it seems like a lot of the the reason I, why it caught on because like Gluck had a really a real knack for promoting. Like he had a skill for it. Yeah, he really did, and, and it's fascinating to look at because 1913 the group started, but it ended up running for 15 years, and it's fascinating to see sort of how his own strategies evolved over that time. The first year, it was really about he he got a ton of 
press coverage, but it was more the novelty of it that got a lot of attention. So he would just the idea that Santa's letters were going to be answered got a lot of attention in the press. And you could really see his skills as a publicity man at work. He was able to get coverage in every major New York newspaper, even nationally, people were writing about it. But then the next year, the novelty wears off. So he has to come up with other ways to keep it relevant. And he, this is the same year that World War I begins. So he initiates this whole campaign of, we're not only going to be uh, getting, answering kids' wishes for Santa, for, but we're going to be encouraging these children to pray for peace. And he even wrote to the president to try to get uh, him to uh, sort of get make a um, you know a, a break in the the war for at least on Christmas Day. Uh, so that also got a lot of attention. And then he starts uh, reaching out to Broadway stars and and stars of the theater. And they working with John Barrymore and and another of the the producers on Broadway. They actually host a. A benefit show all for the Santa Claus Association. All the money that people pay on, uh, I think it was like December 22nd show, uh, all that money goes to help pay for postage and other supplies for the Santa Claus Association. Soon then movie stars, he's getting involved. Uh, at the time, it was all just silent films. Uh, but he each year finds new schemes to get a lot of attention. Politicians were getting involved. Uh, as well as uh, different kind of public figures like that, leaders of business. Uh, and he was always sure to, as soon as he got support from somebody, the word would get out to the press right away about this new person that's either going to be answering a letter to Santa or is coming to the Santa Claus Association headquarters to help answer them. Uh, and he just always kept the group in the headlines that way. Okay. So we got to take a, a quick detour here. Um, because while he was doing the Santa Claus Association, Gluck got involved in a bit of forgotten American history that involves Boy Scouts, mm-hmm. right? And it's, and it's not just the Boy Scouts of America. Uh, he was involved <laughs> with the group. I didn't know this. I didn't know there were. I didn't know at the very beginning of the Scout movement there were different Scouting organizations competing with each other, and it got pretty. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, cutthroat. Uh, how competitive they were in trying to capture young boys, um, their attention. Mm-hmm. But he was involved with a group called the United States Boy Scout. Um, mm-hmm. Can you tell us a bit about this group and what made it different from the BSA? Yeah, and it's similar to learning about Santa. It was the same thing with the, the Boy Scouts, where it's like once you start digging, you're like, oh, there's a fascinating backstory. And, and just as Gluck ch- changed his promotional tactics for the Santa Claus Association each year and found new ways to generate interest in it, he also was always looking for new ideas because obviously the santa claus association it really only became active december 1st and lasted for that month so he had 11 other months he was trying to work and he he kind of patched together different odd jobs but what he found most uh profitable uh was working as as a promoter in this way for sort of noble causes and he saw the success the santa claus association had so then he saw this opportunity with a group called the united states boy scout which uh, when the Boy Scouts of America were founded, uh, it was this import from uh, England and this idea that sort of a paramilitaristic idea of, of the, the you know, young boys should be uh, trained and uh, learn to, uh, you know, learn good character, good citizenship, that sort of thing. Um, but the, the more militaristic version in England, when it was imported to the U.S., a lot of that was kind of dropped. So it was much more just about uh, being a good citizen and, and finding ways to sort of uh, show your civic pride, you know, helping old ladies cross the street and that sort of thing. But 
within months of when the Boy Scouts of America, which is what still is around today that we know, uh, within months of when it was founded, this other group called the United States Boy Scout was created. Uh, and that was actually uh, sort of to fill the, the, the gap of there was of, of that that militaristic uh, element of, of the group where the, the Boy Scouts of America was not militaristic. The, Bo the United States Boy Scout really embraced that. Uh, the, the idea of military and that we're training the children to to fight in the wars eventually. So they would have things like, uh, uh, you know, drills like military drills where they would actually go out and do these mock battles. And they, they, they ended up running into trouble early on. Not only did the Boy Scouts of America kind of organize quickly and start trying to put pressure on these rival groups to shut down, but the, United States Boy Scout also ran had uh, because of their the use of uh, rifles. They had a couple incidents early on where some of the members would shoot each other, and there was actually a couple deaths that happened because of uh, the sort of freewheeling and and gun toting nature of these uh, United States Boy Scout. So the group took a hit and and really fell out of you didn't hear much about them, and that's when Gluck saw an opportunity there that he could kind of use this group as a, a you could, could kind of help promote it and do something more with it, that, that it was still around, uh, but just had lost a lot of membership and a lot of interest. So he then sort of at first joined the group as a fundraiser and then slowly rose up the ranks as his, as he got more and more effective at helping to promote it and to get, uh, there would be kind of playing a lot of the similar uh, heartstrings that the Santa Claus Association would, uh, but where this, where, where the Santa Claus Association appealed to, you know, people's sense of, uh, you know, the holidays and, and, uh, and, and those sort of sentimentality, uh, the Boy Scouts, the, the United States Boy Scout, he really aimed at their patriotism and, and said, you know, donate to our group. And we're helping to train these, these kids to become, uh, you know, good, uh, you know, fighters and good citizens. Uh, and so this this became a, a, a success for me. Ended up raising quite a bit of money, and and in the process, uh, not necessarily being clear with the people who were donating that this was a separate group from the Boy Scouts of America. Uh, it was there were many checks that were sent to them, thinking that they were the Boy Scouts of America, uh, but that actually they didn't realize this was going to a separate organization. And what, Gluck was also he was getting a, a finder's fee, right? He was getting like what forty percent, mm -hmm. whatever money he raised. Yeah, exactly. 40% on top of a salary and all he, he, he was, and, and even that it wasn't being very carefully accounted for. So that was at minimum what he was bringing in on this. Uh, and this is, you know, substantial amounts of money that, that people would donate, uh, especially as this was, you know, when World War One was really kicking into full gear. So people were really cutting checks to patriotic uh, efforts and this was a, a great opportunity for him. So he, uh, he used it. And it seems like his involvement with the, the boy United States boy scout. I mean, that seems like that's where he kind of where he sowed the seeds for his self-destruction with uh, the Santa Claus association. I mean, what, ha what happened with his involvement in with the United States boy scout that it affected how he uh, did work with the Santa Claus Association. Yeah, so he, you know, had these different schemes going on, and, and the, the the most prominent being the Santa Claus Association and this United States Boy Scout. But yeah, it's the, the the difference of Santa Claus Association, it wasn't getting that much scrutiny because there was no one else answering Santa letters, so people were happy to kind of let it 
run and, and do what it was doing. They, there wasn't a lot of questioning about how it was doing this or uh, double checking the, the process to make sure that the money was going where they, where Gluck said it was going. But the United States Boy Scout had a very prominent rival in the Boy Scouts of America. And they were not, uh, not happy to see what the United States Boy Scout was doing. So they, James West in particular, who's sort of the, the, the chief executive of the Boy Scouts of America, really went hard after Gluck and the U.S. Boy Scout. Uh, and it took years of, of them kind of battling back and forth where first it was these efforts just to, you know, inform the public that this is not a real organization uh, on the same level of the Boy Scouts of America, uh, that it was falsely advertising the number of members it had. It was using uh, names of prominent uh, donors and uh, uh, honorary uh, executives and, and giving out all this, this information that was not true. A lot of the times these prominent people didn't even realize that they were uh, being affiliated with this other group. Uh, so they, the Boy Scouts of America first tried to get this information out there. When that didn't totally work, they finally just tried to shut down the United States Boy Scout. Eventually, uh, it went up to the Supreme Court, and they they succeeded in getting uh, the, Gluck to no longer use the, the term Boy Scout in in the group's name. He tried to keep it going under a couple different names, uh, but really once that uh, decision had, had come down that he couldn't use, uh, the, 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 the name that pretty much killed that, uh, effort. And, and it also really exposed Gluck in a way that he hadn't been before. It showed so many elements that things like the, uh, honorary vice presidents, the fundraising questions and, and all of those elements that were going on in the Santa Claus association. Uh, but because it had been exposed so fully with the, the Boy Scouts, uh, scandal, it, created some problems for him with the Santa Claus Association. And he, he ended up, because he was sort of been totally walloped in uh, the decision with the Boy Scouts, he sort of backed off the Santa Claus Association for a couple years. And this was around 1918, I believe. Uh, so it was right around then that he, he ended up having to kind of pull back from being uh, the city's Santa Claus. But he eventually licked his wounds um, and came back to it. And came back to it with, like, with a lot of energy. Um, but something changed in the way he approached the Santa Claus Association. How? What was that change? Yeah, and it was really kind of making himself less of a less of a prominent role for the first five years of the group. Whenever it would be promoted, it was always he was the Santa Claus man. He was the center of the group. It was his business genius and and charitable uh, mind that created the group. It was always him in the headlines. But when he returned to the work, because even though he tried to step away from it, he actually went after the, the Boy Scout scandal, he tried to give, uh, pass the work off to the Salvation Army. Uh, they refused. They had enough else going on that they couldn't really take it on. So he tried to, to not work with the Santa Claus Association anymore after that point, but the letters kept coming and he was still the only person who had authority to answer them. So they kept going to him. Uh, so he kind of couldn't help but still be involved. But then he, he shifted his role where he became more of a background figure. He tapped 
folks like uh, Samuel Brill, who was a prominent businessman, uh, the the the, re- the major retailer uh, owner of Brill Brothers became the figurehead and would speak to the press about the group's work. And then even celebrities like uh, Doug Fairbanks and Mary Pickford uh, became major spokespeople for the group and helped to launch it uh, in its uh, 1923 season. So in all of those stories, Gluck wasn't mentioned, and he really took a back seat. But the work of the Santa Claus Association just got bigger. More letters were coming, bigger names were being associated with it. And it's fascinating to look at it compared to what happened with the Boy Scouts, where once the 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 reality of what was going on behind the scenes of the Boy Scouts was exposed, that fell apart pretty quickly. The Santa Claus Association really kept li- outliving, uh, you know, the exposure and, and things that would have, you know, would have would have killed a, a, a different organization. But because of its connection to Santa and, and the holidays, it proved really hard to, uh, you know, call into question. So, I mean, how how was Gluck? you know, doing the con. Cause I mean, he, part of the thing that made Santa Claus association different, it was just a clearing house. We just mm-hmm. took letters, signed them to people. We didn't touch gifts. We didn't touch money. Like the only money we used was for, um, postage, but like he was making money from this. Um, so how, mm-hmm. what was he doing that allowed him to line his pockets? Yeah. And that's where things started shifting pretty quick. The first year it was all about where we were just a clearinghouse. We don't ever touch any of this stuff. But then by the next year, he was asking for donations to cover postage. Uh, and then it was uh, that he created a gift buying committee uh, within the group that would, if you send us money, we'll do the work of buying these gifts for the children. And then he started, he put out every year, this Santa Claus annual that was really like a, you know, a beautiful, uh, brochure about all the work that they would do with all the photos of the prominent, uh, the society ladies and, and, uh, you know, men of, of industry who were involved in the group. Uh, and he would get advertisers to, to advertise in it and charge them. And he would charge to buy the Santa Claus annual, which all the members would obviously want to do because it had them so flatteringly displayed in there. So he, kept coming up with new ways to raise money despite having initially created the group saying we won't touch money this is all volunteer driven it started shifting and he he saw these opportunities he saw how much generosity was produced during the holiday season how happy people were to try to contribute to this uh and he couldn't help himself it seemed and and so he he started coming up with one scheme after another where the the work of answering the children's letters was still happening but there were all these satellite money-making schemes that were being built up around it. And most of that money was not being accounted for. And there weren't, there, there weren't many more people than Gluck who were, uh, who were profiting from it. And how did the way, I mean, I think the way you describe in the book, seems like philanthropic work in the begin, early 20th century was very laissez-faire. Mm. Um, there wasn't a lot of regulation. That started to change right around the time that the Santa Claus Association got going. How did the, this, these new regulations or new um, policing of charitable organizations, how did that lead to his, the downfall of the Santa Claus Association? Yeah, because it really, charitable giving was really, it was, it was kind of a wild west. There was just a lot of groups asking for money. There wasn't, a lot, there wasn't much formal regulation of it. And after World War I, that's when you saw charity as an industry really grow. That's when it really became a formal industry as we know now with things like the Red Cross and, uh, you know, uh, other major uh, charitable organizations. And Gluck took advantage of that, that that there was still no formal 
uh, policing things like um, if if you you don't have to you didn't have to keep a lot of records if you could just prove that even part of your money could even just be a, a you know a, a negligible percent if that went to the charitable work and most of the other money went to the solicitors who got the money then you couldn't really be prosecuted uh the the da actually had tried to to go after uh Glock, but, but didn't have much luck making anything stick for those reasons the laws just weren't there but things shifted uh, in New York City, particularly, there was a, a, a public welfare commissioner who took over starting in 1918 and really made it his mission. He had previously been sort of the 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 the, the accountant of the the city and and had been was all about you know making sure that all the, the trying to make sure that you know no money was going to waste and was happy to you know cut off groups that seemed like they weren't. Uh, deserving of of uh charity so he started cracking down on things like uh peddlers in the street that were claiming they were with veterans groups or there to help children for the in the war effort and those kind of things he would crack down on their efforts or, or require them to have uh, some sort of permit to do that uh and he did other sort of centralizing of, of charity efforts throughout the city so that Instead of it just being this hodgepodge of different individuals and organizations that no one could really verify, there was really this formal uh, citywide organization that would be overseeing things. Uh, and Gluck didn't want any part of that for, for a lot of reasons. And he really presented it as a, a sense of that, that it shouldn't have this kind of bureaucratic control. That was one of his big selling points of the Santa Claus Association to begin with. It, it wasn't about top down this you know massive organization arranging for donations it was about individuals answering kids letters and he kind of sold that as more formality and formalizing was happening of the charity groups he was saying well santa claus association doesn't need to do that we're about the individuals being able to answer these children's letters and uh that that public welfare commissioner soon enough got wind of what Gluck was doing and kind of the suspicions around what he was doing uh, and then started to take a closer look at the Santa Claus associations. And I mean, he, Gluck also used just the, the sentimental feelings that people had about Santa Claus. Yeah. Pe- I mean, people love this the idea and, and they still do now, you know, the idea of answering Santa's letters every year uh, in New York, there's, there's the, the, the New York city post offices answers Santa letters. And people are always like, Oh my gosh, I didn't know that they do that. And it's sort of a new discovery each December. Do you know how much money Gluck made during this long con? It's, it's hard to say because he did not keep super strict records. Uh, but as much as, as a quarter million potentially, but as low as maybe just, you know, 10, 20,000, but he certainly was generating a lot of money, but he was able to keep it all kind of shady in a way that it was impossible to really get a, an exact figure. And that's what made him so, uh, you know, slippery for these for, for when uh, any kind of authorities tried to prosecute or to, to get a closer look at what they were doing, uh, it was difficult because he, he, the records were sort of misleading or he would have uh, information that didn't really say exactly how much was coming in or exactly how it was being used. I mean, so what do you think about, what, what do you think Gluck's legacy is? I mean, he did uh, take advantage. He, he made a lot of money unethically. Uh, by taking advantage of Santa Claus, but at the same time, he was a, a Christmas booster. He was a Santa Claus booster. Um, do we have something to thank to Gluck for you know, the way we think of Christmas today? 
I think so. And he, he really, he was the first to, in New York, to, to answer Santa letters at this scale and to, to give it this kind of attention after even, you know, as he was exposed and it was 1928 when he finally, uh, sort of his downfall and, and the book kind of outlines, you know, how, how that came about. It was a, it took some doing even, even as he was being exposed, it was still difficult to really, uh, pull the letters from him, uh, because of the, the, the quirky rules of the post office. But once he finally was, uh, had this revoked, this, the letters still, came in and were still answered and the, the post office ended up uh, creating its own organization, Operation Santa Claus, which still operates today, kind of in, in, uh, as a result of what Gluck had done. Uh, and it still has a lot of similar elements to the kind of uh, executive approach that he had used where it's the, the careful organization of, of numbering letters and matching them to the donors and having more direct contact between the donors and the givers. Uh, and so many elements of what the Santa Claus Association did and, and Gluck's innovations with that uh, are still in practice today. You can go to the same post office that he went to, uh, uh, the, the, the Farley post office on uh, 8th Avenue, uh, and go in there today and, and get uh, letters to Santa to answer. So that legacy still lives on, and, that, and, and obviously the, the children whose letters he answered uh, were, that's still something that, uh, despite what he may have been uh, skimming off the top, there was still there was still good to come out of this effort compared to say if if he had been pulling a complete Ponzi scheme, uh, there was something slightly more noble, I guess, about the Santa Claus Association, even if even as it kind of played on the uh, emotions and, and generosity of New Yorkers. Well, Alex, this has been a, a great discussion, and I, I if you're listening to this, go out and get this book. It's a great Christmas time read. Um, where can people learn more about your book, about the book and your work? Yeah, well, um, my, my website is alexpalmerwrites.com where you can read about updates on the book and, and all kinds of other news on it. Uh, and it's available in most bookstores, certainly Barnes and Noble and Amazon, uh, and any independent bookstore as well. It should be available there. Uh, yeah, I'm glad you enjoyed it. Yes, Alex Palmer, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure and uh, have a Merry Christmas. Thanks a lot. You too, Brett. Take care. My guest today was Alex Palmer. He's the author of the book, The Santa Claus Man. It's available on Amazon.com. Go check it out. Great Christmas time read. Uh, you'll learn a lot about the history of Christmas in America today. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash Santa Claus, where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. And our show is edited by Creative Audio Lab here in Tulsa, Oklahoma. If you have any audio editing needs or audio production needs, check them out at creativeaudiolab.com. As always, we appreciate your reviews on iTunes or Stitcher. It helps us out a lot. Until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. Addiction plays hardball. He would hit me with these verbal attacks. I just said to him, I love you so much. You're such an amazing person. I can't take this ride anymore. It was the fact that dad made that sentiment and broke down. And years later, he told me it had a huge impact on him. Sometimes doing what's right for your loved one is the hardest thing to do. Karen is that right thing. Visit caron.org slash lost. 
you can live out your MasterChef dreams. When you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that.